Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg. Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Sunak versus Starmer. In this election year, how are they measuring up to voters' expectations? Byline Times political editor Adam Bienkoff has been analysing recent results from opinion pollsters. We think it's not particularly flattering for either of the main contenders to be prime minister at the next election, which constitutionally has to take place within the next 12 months. The latest poll suggests that eight out of 10 voters believe that Rishi Sunak doesn't get Britain. But they aren't overly impressed by Keir Starmer either, complaining that the Labour leader isn't sufficiently different to his Conservative counterpart. Welcome, Adam. Let's talk first about Keir Starmer, because a few days ago, Byline Times had, I thought, a really fascinating poll, which suggested that, as many people perhaps have observed before, you really can't put a Rizzler between Keir Starmer and mainstream Conservative thinking, certainly in regard to some policies. Yeah, so the polling shows that there is a, a huge amount of demand for, for change. There's around 8 in 10 voters currently say that it's time for a change. They think the country's in, in the wrong direction. They're not happy with the government. They're not happy with uh, Rishi Sunak, who they see as being out of touch with their, their concerns. So they, they want change. That's clear. And that's why we're seeing such huge leads for the Labour Party over the Conservatives in some recent polls, up to 27 points ahead of the Conservatives. However, at the same time, when you ask voters, what do you think of the Labour Party and of Keir Starmer, there's a much more muted reception. We asked whether voters believe there are significant differences between Labour and the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. When you ask that, actually, most voters believe that they're, they're broadly the same. There aren't huge differences between them. And, you know, personally, I think that's, that's not entirely fair. There are sort of clear policy differences. There are differences in, in style. There's differences in, in agenda. But it's undoubtedly the case that for most voters, there is that sort of sense that really they're all the same. And I think that ties into sort of a broader collapse in trust in, in politicians in, in general. There was a recent King's College London study showing that trust in politicians has halved since the 1990s. And I think that collapse has accelerated in recent years, particularly with scandals like the Partygate scandal. And although that has clearly damaged the government, I think it bleeds over into a sort of broader lack of trust in politicians, which risks hurting Labour Party as well, not just in the run up to the general election, but also potentially after the general election when they're trying to get things through. That lack of enthusiasm, lack of trust in politicians in general could be just as difficult for a Labour government as it's proving to be for the Conservative government right now. Just breaking down those figures, 57% of voters agreed with the statement there is little real difference between Labour and the Conservatives. 43%, though, did believe that Labour is offering real change. Fewer than half of voters, 45%, led that a government led by Keir Starmer would be significantly different to one led by Rishi Sunak. 36% believed it would be broadly similar. But as you say, it's not just a case of style or competence. There are real policy differences between yes. Labour and the Conservatives. And actually, I uh, was speaking recently to Luke Trill, who's a former government advisor, now, now a pollster, and he conducts regular focus groups around the country of voters. And they do often come out with this sentiment, they're all the same, there's no real difference between the parties. But when he says, when he actually explains what the differences are, and he says, you know, Labour is, is planning to spend billions of pounds a year on green investment, they plan a non-DOM tax, et cetera, et cetera. There's actually a lot of enthusiasm for what 
he sets out about what Labour are planning to do. And actually, a lot of voters are quite excited about what they're hearing, but they're just not hearing it at the moment. And I think that's part of the fear among some people in Labour is that Keir Starmer and the team around him haven't been very good at getting their case across and spelling out what the differences are. And part of that may be intentional. There has been a sort of deliberate attempt by the Labour Party and by the Starmer leadership to kind of suggest that there isn't really huge differences between uh, himself and the Conservative Party. Sort of try and damp down fears that he's radical, trying to move away from the, I guess, move away from the Corbyn era and from the attacks that the Conservatives tried to make that he is similar to Jeremy Corbyn, of course, he served alongside in, in the shadow cabinet previously. So, you know, I think that there is a, there is that, that sense. And I think it's something that they're going to have to work out over the, the coming months. Because on one hand, there is a clear demand for change, but also the Labour Party, they don't want to sort of scare the, the horses too much. They don't want to make it look like, particularly on the, the Green Prosperity uh, Pledge, their plan for Green Prosperity Plan, £28 billion. That's the main line of attack for the government at the moment. The Labour Party are kind of gradually eking away from that pledge. And again, I think that there is some dissatisfaction among some Labour people about the fact that Labour appears to be backing away from that. Because actually, when, when you poll on that issue, and when you're asking focus groups about that issue, people support that plan. But they do fear, Rachel Reeves in particular, the Shadow Chancellor, does fear that this is going to be used to bash them again and again during the general election campaign. So at least in terms of rhetoric, they do seem to be backing away from that. Whether or not they actually do in government is another matter. Yeah, I mean, time after time when Rachel Reeves is questioned about the £28 billion spending commitments that the Green Deal involves, the caveat is always made, if we can afford it, they are very big on having quite rigid spending rules, aren't they? And that's partly, I think, hangover of the last time Labour were in power. I think most objective observers would acknowledge that there was a global banking crisis. It affected every developed country, and it was ultimately caused by the recklessness and greed of financial institutions. But nevertheless, opposition parties were able to pin the blame on Labour, and that sense that the economy is, quote, not safe with Labour is a persistent line of attack used against them. So I'm guessing that's what Rachel Reeves is trying to hedge against. They fear that that, that's why they lost the recent elections since 2010. But actually, when you look at the substance of the plan, it's not not even £28 billion a year, because £10 billion of that is based on current government plans. And even taking that into account if they spend the full £28 billion a year, which, by the way, they're not even planning to spend until the end of the first term of a Labour government, that would still leave the UK kind of in the bottom third of the league of comparable nations in terms of public investment. So this isn't a huge splurge of cash. This is sensible investment and it will lead to growth and it will lead to jobs. So that's why I think we're seeing some sort of hedging from Labour about this, because Really, by this point, you would have expected they'd made the decision on whether to keep this policy or not, because we've been hearing briefings against it for sort of over a year now. But we're just not getting that. And that does tap into some broader fears about Starmer from some of his colleagues, that he's not really got that kind of sharp political edge and is quite indecisive. Some of the same criticisms that are made against Sunak, by the way. And they say he's not really a politician. I mean, he's essentially, they say, a a former civil servant and a, a sort of civil servant by instinct. And his chief of staff, of course, is a former civil servant, Sue Gray. And they, they sort of fear that the leadership kind of lacks that political edge that they're going to need. And they fear that that possibly could 
causes them some problems when we actually do get to that general election campaign. But as anybody who reads Byline Times will testify, and as anybody who listens to this podcast regularly will testify, people like Rupert Murdoch, Paul Dacre at the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, have a disproportionate influence in terms of determining what the talking points are, what the political agenda is in this country. So if you accept the argument that you only get a Labour government when it's kind of smuggled in the back door of Downing Street, and that it can't perhaps be seen in public to be as radical as maybe it would like to be, then you could argue that Starmer's steering a, a steady course. The polls would suggest that even if there's this lack of wild enthusiasm for him, he is on course for a significant general election victory. Yeah, I mean, nobody looking at recent polls showing Labour up to 27 points ahead of Conservatives is going to come away from that thinking, oh, well, the, the real problem, the individual in British politics facing the biggest problem is Keir Starmer. Clearly, that's, that's not the case. But there is a big difference between Labour winning a general election, which I think by all sort of reasonable likely scenarios they're likely to do, and winning a big majority or winning a landslide majority. And it would only take sort of relatively small movements in the uh, headline lead between Labour sort of barely winning and winning by a big landslide. And it's not just about winning the election as well. It's about laying the ground for what you're going to do in government. And if there isn't a, if there is a lack of trust in in the Labour Party, if there is a lack of enthusiasm for a Labour government, then they could quickly get themselves into into trouble. And we've seen this in other parts of the world, by the way. And we've seen it in the US, obviously, with Joe Biden, whose ratings have tanked since he became president. We've also seen it in Europe as well, the resurgence of the far right in some countries, including Germany, but also in countries where the populist right have been in charge, such as in, in Poland, which has now seen a, a swing back to the centre. And so you're seeing sort of electorates around the world are very volatile because there's just such dissatisfaction with the status quo, whether that status quo is on the left or on the right. And I think that's something that, that Labour have to be guarding against at this point. Yes, they don't want to sort of overpromise, but they do need to have some kind of greater enthusiasm in order to carry them through and actually bring forward the big changes that they do actually want to bring in should they be elected uh, later this year. The Inflation Reduction Act in the United States supports a range of technologies, including electric cars, renewable power. There is a danger that if the UK doesn't commit to something similar to Starmer's Green Deal, the UK will be left behind anyway. I mean, this is not the stuff of radical politics, really, is it? No. And as I say, even if, if Labour do commit the full £28 billion, it would still leave the UK sort of relatively in, in the doldrums in terms of comparable countries in massive public investment. And the UK, it's the right thing to do strategically and also, I think, politically to go, to go ahead with it. But whether or not Labour are going to go ahead with it or not go ahead with it, they need to make the decision. And Starmer needs to, I think, needs to decide now and actually make it clear why he's doing that. At the moment, we're, we're sort of getting back and forth from briefings either way, briefings against Ed Miliband, who, who came up with a policy in, in the first place. That, that's sort of a regular occurrence. I think he just needs to make a decision and stick with it. Um, we're just not seeing that at the moment. So those are briefings that you're receiving from Labour insiders? Yeah, I mean, and public briefings as well. So uh, there was a, a Q&A with Keir Starmer's spokesperson this week after Prime Minister's questions where he was asked about this. And it was very clear, uh, reading between the lines of what he was saying, that the, the 28 billion figure was, they said, was a figure that the party came up with some years ago. But there's been changes since then. 
we think it's possible, but we're going to have to wait and see what the government does in the budget. We have to wait to see what tax cuts they commit to, except basically laying the ground for that figure to be watered down even even further. But again, if, you, if you're going to do that, I think you just need to come out and say that's the case rather than sort of leave it sort of endlessly being fodder for front pages uh, as it has been over the last year. You talked about the perception of a lack of political courage from Keir Starmer, but just a few days ago, he spoke at the Civil Society Summit, which brought together lots of third sector organisations. And he criticised the Conservatives for their culture wars. He said that they were McCarthyite. He said that they were waging war on organisations like the Royal National Lifeboy Institution, the National Trust, and the Trussell Trust, which is one of the leading providers of food banks. Some people would say he was pretty brave to go there because that's an area where the Conservatives seem to feel that they can gain decisive ground over Labour. Well, it's certainly an area where they've tried to make, make ground over Labour on. Actually, when you look at the polling on a lot of these so-called culture war issues, the public don't feel that strongly about. It's not like the US where some of these issues really sort of take off in the public imagination. They just haven't done so far. And when you look at what he's the areas where he's actually chosen to pick this fight, Keir Starmer, National Trust. I mean, it doesn't get much safer sort of target to defend than National Trust, the RNLI as well. I think it was the right thing to do. And I think it does show a level of growing confidence around Starman Labour that they are willing to sort of take this fight on, even on the sort of relatively safe part of the culture wars. But but look, it doesn't seem to have deterred the Conservatives and, and Downing Street from pursuing these issues at Prime Minister's questions this week. Rishi Sunak had a pop at Keir Starmer for taking the knee over the Black Lives Matters protesters, protests a few years back. Um, again, we did some polling on that this week, which showed that actually the public agree with Keir Starmer on that. So I think that Labour believe that they're on the right side of the argument on these culture wars. And also, I think there's there's an attempt by Labour to try and make the Conservatives look a bit odd, that they're obsessed with these sort of weird sort of culture war issues. We saw at the Conservative Party conference last year, which you see now, his ministers talking about things like the 15-minute city conspiracy theory, some of these other sort of fringe issues, uh, low traffic neighbourhoods. I think Labour believe that you look at the polls, you look at what voters are saying in focus groups, they really care about the economy, they care about the NHS, they care about the environment. They also care to a lesser extent about immigration. They don't really care about some of these sort of fringe culture war issues. And if Labour can kind of make Rishi Sunak and his party look a bit odd and a bit obsessed with their own culture war issues, then I think that's that's not a bad strategy for Labour to, to be pursuing. Starmer said a few days ago that Sunak doesn't get Britain. There was a robust defence of Sunak from the Leader of the House, Penny Mordaunt. She said that uh, Sunak doesn't just get Britain, he represents the best of Great Britain. What's this about, that Sunak not getting Britain? I'm imagining this is about his very considerable wealth and the wealth of his family. I just wonder, though, if there may be a kind of slightly sinister, maybe even unwitting racist interpretation that could be applied to that. I'm not sure everybody will feel comfortable about that attack by Starmer. That is the claim that the Conservatives have tried to make about it. They've suggested that this is a kind of dog whistle. I don't really buy that as an argument. I think it's pretty unlikely that Keir Starmer has gone out and said, oh, I know I do. I'll make this dog whistle argument and that will get 
Labour voters on my. I don't. I, it just doesn't really work as a as a strategy. Aside from the fact that I just you know I just don't think that's something that Keir Starmer would do. If anything, I think it's a dog whistle about his wealth and about the wealth of his his family. I think that's really what he's trying to to get at. And it also does tie in what with what voters believe about Rishi Sunak, which is that he is out of touch. I mean, we did some polling this week. Eighty percent of voters believe that he doesn't get the pressures that average British people are facing at the moment. And so I think that's what Starmer's kind of trying to point towards. I really don't think it's anything to do with race, although I, I do understand why the Conservatives are trying to make that argument um, as a defence. Where does Sunak go from here? Because he's even had one of his own backbenchers turning on him in the last few days. It, it does just feel like he's got very little enthusiastic support from amongst the Conservative Party. We've seen countless relaunches over the last year from Sunak, and none of them appear to have made any difference to his standing or the standing of the Conservative Party. And if anything, matters have got worse for them over the over the last year. I think when he took over just over a year or a year and a couple of months ago, there was kind of relief among voters after Liz Truss. He was seen as a safe pair of hands. And there was a certain amount of willingness from voters to sort of give him a chance. The best strategy for him to have taken at that point was to kind of paint himself as a kind of centre ground, sensible prime minister. But he started off doing that and he had his five pledges that he was just going to repeat endlessly, which I think was a sort of reasonable strategy to take at that point. But since then, not only has he not met most of those pledges, but he's kind of zigzagged around, sort of veering onto culture war issues saying he's the, the candidate who most represents change. And when that didn't work, he's now sort of veered back to sort of plugging away at, at his pledges again. So where does he go from, from here? Nothing seems to be working. He's got members of his party sort of privately or publicly suggesting he should go. I think from his perspective, I don't think there's much chance of a leadership contest. I think most Conservative MPs, although they can't see much hope for them, they don't really believe that changing leader for the fifth time since 2010 would make things better for them. Actually, the, the reason why the Conservatives are so far behind the polls isn't really to do with Sunak, however unimpressive he may have been over the last year. It's to do with some bigger fundamentals, which is the fact that people's wages haven't gone up in the last 10 years. We've had austerity, we've had dissatisfaction on our public services, public services not walking, schools crumbling. These are the kind of fundamental issues that are behind the, the Conservatives' poor positions. It's not really to do with Rishi Sunak, even if he hasn't done much to turn that situation around. So I think from his perspective, he's going to want to just kind of get through the next few months. Their last big hope, other than sort of pushing more attacks on Keir Starmer and trying to sort of play on sort of doubts about Keir Starmer, is to implement some big tax cuts at the, at the upcoming budget and hope that that's enough to, to turn the dial for, for them and, and the government. It may make a difference, it may narrow the polls, but nothing we've seen about the autumn statement and the previous budgets, none of the measures they brought in then seem to make any difference. So I don't really see an obvious reason why it would make a difference this time either, to be honest. One final question, Adam. We now have the Israel-Gaza conflict, and that has split a lot of Labour support in the country. A lot of pressure coming on groups like Labour Friends of Israel, a lot of pressure coming on Keir Starmer himself to call for a ceasefire. So far, he stood pretty much four square with Rishi Sunak on this. Does this issue, thousands of miles from home, 
run the risk of splitting the Labour Party again? Well, we have seen it being a driver of votes in the US, and there's a lot of sort of democratic dissatisfaction with Joe Biden on the issue. I think it is something that that does really concern Labour Party activists and Labour Party members. And there is a lot of dissatisfaction with Keir Starmer on this issue. And I think this does tap into those kind of broader sense of his lack of political instincts and sort of indecisiveness, where he's, I think he could have much earlier come out with a much more nuanced position on this. Uh, yes, stood up for Israel's right to defend itself, but also been very clear about what limits of that right to defend itself were. And I think he took a long time to kind of come up with a more nuanced position on that. But do I think it's going to be a big election issue? No, I think for most voters in the UK, it's it's not even a kind of third order issue. I mean, the, the, the people who care about it, and rightly do care about it, it is important and, you know, not, not more downplay the, the significance of what's happening in the Middle East. But it's, there isn't, isn't much evidence in the polls so far which suggests that it's really driving how people vote, not least because there isn't really a significant difference between the two major parties on this thing. Adam, thank you for your time. If you want to read more from Adam, the Byline Times political editor, don't forget to head over to our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's also where you'll find details of how to subscribe to the Byline Times, which is our fabulous monthly newspaper. You may pick it up on a newsstand or two these days. M&S, Waitrose and more are stocking the Byline Times. But the one way to guarantee yourself a copy and not only read the best of our online offerings, but get content that you can't read anywhere else is to take out a subscription. So do head over to bylinetimes.com. And in so doing, you will also help to support this podcast. Thanks very much indeed, Adam. You can also follow Adam's folded column on his uh, sub stack as well. How do we get to that, Adam? That's adambiankov.co.uk. There you go. And that's uh, recommended as well. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been a We Bring Audio production in Birmingham for the Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye. <laughs>